Coming up this hour, we're talking about the start of Black History Month, and then we're joined by Dr. Richard Beck. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We made it to February. I saw, I'm sure there's like a thousand versions of this, but people were like, man, January was the longest year I can remember, or this last week was the longest month of my life. Or, you know, like, I feel like that's the, the, the kind of joke I keep seeing people make. And are you seeing these types of jokes? Is it just me? Yeah. No, no, no. They're out there for sure. <laughs> it's, it's weird because it felt like in 2020, there was all of this like expectation, like, ah, just cross the finish line, get to 2021. And then obviously very quickly, we're like, never mind. We take it back. We, we, it's, it's, uh, it's so bizarre, but it also doesn't it kind of show this like longing for, some level of like, can we just get past this, whatever Absolutely. that, whatever that fill in the blank is. And like, I think that's part of what's generating all of these memes and jokes like, oh my gosh, can we? So it's, it is interesting because we, you know, we, we made it to February 1st and we, you know, just had a bunch of big snows and I just had knee surgery and I'm shoveling when I shouldn't <laughs> be. And I'm, that's causing all sorts of other issues. So like, I, I feel that as well, but I, I did want to take this first segment at least and definitely future segments. Today is also the start of Black History Month and a number of friends of mine, men and women of color who have been writing and speaking and tweeting about, you know, this month in particular, but, you know, certainly more than just around February. I thought, man, I really would love to dedicate just at the very least a segment around how momentous this is and why important it is. And so I actually found some articles and you'll be happy, Brian. I picked them based on which ones had lists. Uh, so with I appreciate a, a couple of lists here, but they all sort of have the same headline. Um, and it's sort of something like this. Why Christians should celebrate Black History Month. For some of you, that might be really obvious. Others of you, maybe it's less obvious. But I wanted to commit some space to actually unpack that a little bit. And then all of these will be up at the Facebook page where you can read further. But I'm going to let you pick which of these three you'd like to dive into first. Yeah, I appreciated this blog. Uh, it is called Every Square Inch. Uh, a, blo- a blog by The Crossing. So uh, not sure who The Crossing is, but it's a good blog because they said it, exactly as you said, it was titled Why Christians Should Celebrate Black History Month. Uh, and it said it begins this way. Uh, Black History Month, something about it doesn't set right with some people. Why don't we have White History Month or Asian History Month? Others agree with Morgan Freeman, who said, I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. Hmm. But the author goes on to say, but I've come to think that Black History Month is a good idea for our country and for the church, and it goes through the history of it. And I didn't know this. 1976, Gerald Ford expanded it to a month-long celebration mm-hmm. and renamed it Black History Month, saying it would seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every aspect of endeavor throughout our history. And so I think uh, the blog is making the point, here's why it's important, not just culturally, but in the church. What? Uh, let's take specific time uh, to look at uh, the history of of the African American Church, but also uh, just uh, just the history. And so, real fast, I'll run through these five, and then let you speak on them. Five reasons Christians should celebrate Black History Month. The author says, one, to remember the significant contributions made by African Americans, and then two, to remember how far we've come and how far we have to go. I think that's an important one. Uh-huh. Uh, three, to give thanks to God for the work of the Black Church. And then four, to remember that black history is our history. And then number five, to remember God is glorified 
by diversity, kind of this highlighting of diversity. And so I think they make a compelling case as to why uh, we as the church and as a culture uh, should be celebrating Black History Month. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm curious, why do you think that that there's some pushback from people? What what would be the reasoning as to know? I, I think that Black History Month specifically isn't something to observe or maybe it's got some something negative about it. I mean, besides the obvious <laughs> that I won't say, I'll leave that to your imagination. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from exactly what that article is positing, right? Like maybe, maybe not a, a robust understanding of the history. Um, maybe it is a lack of engagement, I guess, with those who have lived a different experience in this country than they have. Maybe it is, yeah, maybe for this person, the highlighting of any uh, race or ethnicity or background over any other one feels mm -hmm. problematic, which I guess would tie back kind of to my point. Number one, I thought my buddy Eric Dorsey, actually, he made a, a much longer post, but I want to read a little bit of it and then a little more from this other article. And uh, Eric Dorsey, who leads our community freedom effort, and he is he's a pastor, but he's I think he's incredibly thoughtful. He's very mindful. He's really good at like holding space and tension for different um, beliefs and, and positions. He's really good at it. So here, here's a little bit of what he wrote. He says, as a believer in God and a Christ follower, I believe that God is a God of reconciliation. This means his desire is to reconcile his relationship with people. And he desires that people reflect that by showing a heart of reconciliation with one another. God was very intentional in painting a picture of a very diverse group of people in heaven, Revelation 7, 9. We should be just as intentional to manifest his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Just like in a marriage relationship, it's important that both parties understand the true history of the other in order to know how to relate to them. So as we continue to look at uh, look to heal from our past, it's important to understand all the history that has shaped this nation, both good and bad. This will empower us to relate to our neighbor from a posture of empathy, compassion, understanding, and love. I would say these are the ingredients to healthy relationships in families and communities. I welcome you to follow my post this month in hopes that God would shrink the gap of racial division in our land. And so he's kind of committing to posts all this month uh, to that end. And I love, I just love Eric's vision for that. I think that's a great idea. Uh, briefly, if I have enough time, if it's okay, this other article at uh, Faith, the Faith Plus Leader, they offer these six breakthrough practices, which I'm a big fan of the word practices. Like, okay, how do we actually live some of this out? Uh, if that's all right, Brian, I'd love to just read the six. Go for it. And then let you react with whatever time we have. Um, mm -hmm. Number one, stake the claim in your congregation that black history is an integral part of our shared American history. Celebrate it. This is a way to acknowledge the incredible efforts of black brothers and sisters to persist and thrive. Two, show appreciation for how black people pushed the church to be more compassionate and speak up in the midst of evil practices. Three, Support continued efforts for equity and inclusion in your congregations and community. Contemplate and develop acts of confession and reparations for those who have been historically marginalized or denied justice. Four, pray, teach, and preach about the call of the gospel to serve the oppressed, bring hope, and to love justice. Don't be afraid to ask, why is this the way it is? How did it come about? And what can we as a, as a church do to address these inequities? Five, learn and study more about famous people of African descent in America and all over the world. Encourage children to embrace these role models irrespective of their ethnic heritage or skin color. And six, read authors from other ethnic groups. I can't stress this one enough, by the way. Read authors from other ethnic groups and who hold different perspectives, particularly ones who may have firsthand experience with black history 
throughout the world. I know that we're wrapping up on time, but any of those stand out to you, Brian, as like particularly timely or helpful? Yeah, it's actually the one where you you highlighted it, that last one about reading authors from other ethnic groups and who hold different perspectives. That's something that I've uh, I'll make a confession. I've rarely done, right? mm-hmm. whether it be, you know, early on as a pastor or even now, you, like you've yeah. got kind of your go to's. And that's why I think something like Black History Month is is helpful is at the very least to go, who are the other voices I can listen to? Who can I be reading? Uh, and and that kind of question. Yeah, I don't. The, the couple times you and I have brought that up about uh, look at your own bookshelf, right, in your in your house or in your in your office. And, and you know, my bookshelf is filled with a lot of white men. And that's mm-hmm. uh, and so just reading this kind of stuff goes, OK, how do I expand? How do I read more broadly? Uh, and I'm going to be better off for that. My church is going to be better off for that. Our community yes. is going to be better off for that as we do that. So that alone, I think, answers the question as to why. Uh, why celebrate Black History Month. But yeah, that number six one, I think is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Coming up next, though, I got to tell you, I am I am so thrilled for this guest, Dr. Richard Beck. We referenced him a couple of weeks ago. He wrote A Theology of Calvin and Hobbes. That's what we were talking about. He's written other books. Uh, this one's a great title, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. But more recently, uh, Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. He's joining us for two segments here next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we're thrilled to have for two segments, someone we referenced a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Richard Beck. Welcome to the show, sir. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would, would you just take a, a minute or two and introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, what I do, my day job, I'm a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University down here in Abilene, Texas, and I'm an author. My most recent book was uh, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, <laughs> the, Go- the Gospel According to Johnny Cash. <laughs> and my upcoming book is called Hunting Magic Eels, uh, Re- Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. So the titles are unusual, but maybe, maybe people will pull them off the shelf. I love it. <laughs> and, and as as Ian said, we we referenced you from an article that somebody else wrote a couple of weeks ago uh, about Calvin and Hobbes, which was a lot of fun to discuss. But as I was looking at it, you've written on the theology of Calvin and Hobbes, the theology of peanuts. You just talked about Johnny Cash. <laughs> what drives you to want to kind of explore, uh, say, pop culture things or Calvin and Hobbes and tie them back to our faith? It seems like something you like to do. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I was one of those people that uh, started a blog back when blogs were still a thing. I'm still blogging at Experimental Theology, and it was just a location where I could explore these fun kind of tangential topics. So as a professor, a lot of your academic interests need to be somewhat professional. So when you get a brainstorm about Calvin and Hobbes or Johnny Cash, you you need an outlet for that. And blogs were just a great place to just float ideas and experiment, and it's been my fortune that – some of those things have found their way to, to audiences and even in a print. So so we'll talk more about some of those print uh, ventures of yours. But I, I just got to know, as someone who like grew up reading Calvin and Hobbes, in some ways, like collect, I mean, my whole family was into a, it was sort of a cultural thing. Maybe it's because I was homeschooled. It's hard to tell. But <laughs> like, what are some of the like key takeaways, if you can remember, from from doing this work in kind of an unexpected way? Like, what would you want someone to know about a theology of Calvin Hobbes that they maybe otherwise wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing you want to be careful with is importing Christian theology and right. beliefs where it's not welcome. 
And so I think the first thing you have to do in approaching a text like Calvin and Hobbes is is not turn the turn Calvin and Hobbes into something it's not. So you want to be you want to be true to its vibe, and that's the first question you got to deal with. In in my series, I had to deal with is that the strip isn't overtly religious, but there are hints where the gospel can show up. And one of the most obvious one is just the name of Calvin, which Watterson explicitly said was named after John Calvin mm. of uh, and his kind of dim take on human nature and Christian theology would call that the doctrine of like total depravity or original sin. And if you know anything about Calvin and Hobbes, it is a profound meditation on human nature through the personality of Calvin. And, mm. but so I think there's an, a window in there to what we call like Christian anthropology, a, a vision of our self-centeredness, of our egotism, of our even our meanness. You see how Calvin treats uh, Susie, uh, the girl in the strip. And so that's kind of what was my entry point, just a reflection on human nature, original sin, our fallenness, and then starting from there and kind of exploring outwards. Oh, that's great. Uh, you said, as you said, you have a new book coming out in March called Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. And I just can't ra- wait to get my hands on this book because you talk about how in the, enlighten- in the Enlightenment and uh, the Reformation, we've become increasingly disenchanted. And you're talking about an enchanted faith. And-, and I love that word. Could you speak to us a little bit about what you mean when you use the phrase an enchanted faith? Yeah, that's a word that has come up in the sociology of religion literature, characterizing 500 years ago when the world was enchanted. That is to say, belief in God was taken as a given. Mm-hmm. And not just belief in God, but all supernatural phenomenon from the occult to ghosts to spirits to demons to the devil and God himself and angels. But our world is increasingly disenchanted. And so we see rate, rising rates of skepticism, agnosticism, disbelief, the decline of Christianity in the West. But I like the word enchantment and disenchantment because we typically talk about faith in the idiom of belief, uh, to believe in something cognitively. But enchantment allows us to focus more on the experience of God. And I found that a fruitful hmm. beginning place to talk about faith with my students because normally they think of Christianity as like trying to force themselves to believe in unbelievable things. Right. So, so believing in Christianity is like forcing yourself to believe in Santa Claus. But if you open up the language of faith to experience, what, what are you experiencing in life? Where is the sacred and divine showing up in surprising ways? Suddenly, it's a more generous conversation, and people can get some on-ramp there. And kind of like, yeah, I've had experiences where I think there's something mysterious going on with the world. Hmm. So, so why do you think, at least in Western post-Enlightenment culture, experience in some circles tends to be really downplayed? Obviously, that's not true in a lot of like maybe more charismatic circles, but it certainly feels like at least in conversations I've been in, oh, well, a rational person doesn't uh, elevate experience to the level of intellect or, you know, cerebral ascent. Like, why, why do you think there's sometimes this, this tendency to dismiss the experiential? Yeah, I think it just depends on who you're talking to, because I know by introducing experience into religious context, I know a lot of my friends that are theologians and Bible scholars get a little concerned about that because they see – how religious experience, like charismatic excesses, can can go off the rails. Uh, and so you definitely need to talk about discernment and the biblical idea of discerning the spirits. And so, so there are some temptations there when you start privileging experience because experience can become, for a person, unimpeachable, right? I've had God speaks to me. I've, I've got a word from the Lord and nothing else can 
speak against that. So I, I think there's a worry on that side. But I do think also in the culture, there is a rationalism that's at stake, that it's the rational, the empirical, the factual that leads us to the truth. And so experience is subjective and therefore um, a location of skepticism. So, at, But at that point, I think you want to talk to people about how the most important things in your life tend to be experiences. That, that there's something weird going on with us when we start downplaying experiences because when you talk about love and faith and value, even among atheists, that it's their experiences of the world, their experiences of value, of truth, beauty, and goodness, of even the mystery of the world, even if they don't believe in God, something mysterious about the world, that those are the truest things in their lives, that we aren't robots, that we aren't just you know logical, factual creatures. So um, there's skepticism there, but I think there's a way to kind of push back on that a little bit. Yeah. And, and in the description, it says that part of the book you talk about to cultivate an enchanted faith in a skeptical age. And you've talked about it a little bit, but but what might be one or two very practical things we can do to cultivate it? How do we grow uh, in enchanted faith in our lives? Well, I take an idea from the theologian Andrew Root, who borrows an idea from a uh, Harvard uh, psychologist Daniel Simons, the about uh, what he calls attentional blindness. Do you all know that YouTube clip where you're asked to see two teams passing a basketball back and forth, and you're supposed to yeah. count the passes between the teams? Yeah. If if you haven't seen it, your viewers can go online and find this, and you count the passes between these two teams, and the video says how many passes did you count, and you say twelve, but then they say great, you got the correct answer, but did you see the dancing gorilla? And the video replays and lo, lo and behold, you see this dancing gorilla in front of you. And so in psychology, that's called attention blindness. The way your attention can cause you to see some things, but blind you to very obvious things like a dancing gorilla right in front of you. So it might be heretical to write a book uh, basically saying God is the dancing gorilla in your life. <laughs> uh, but that's the, that's the idea I play with is that God is that very obvious thing right in front of you. But your attention has been drawn to other things in life. And some of it's the, the way science has drawn our attention. Um, but it's also just kind of the hurry and neurosis of our lives that cause us to become kind of self-absorbed and self-focused. To go back to Calvin and Hobbes, right? He's a very yeah. internally oriented kind of little kid. So what I recommend in the book is, and across a series of chapters are, are practices that cause you to kind of re-attend to your life to the kind of very obvious things. And one simple place to start is just widening the view. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about religious experiences, most people think of visions of angels or the audible voice of God. Mm -hmm. and, and they look at their life and they go like, I've never really experienced anything like that. But when you widen the view and say, but haven't you stood like, you know, right there at the threshold when your child was born? Or when you were suddenly interrupted by a sunset or a starry sky, where you where you'd pause for a moment and just kind of said, you know, I think there's something more here than just a factual description of what happened. Hmm. That that I bumped into a texture of the sacred, and so it's it's a hermeneutical process, and that's just a fancy word for interpretation mm -hmm. to help us reread and reinterpret what happens in front of us every day. And if we can train ourselves, then I think God shows up a lot more than we think. Gosh, that's so good. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Beck. He's the author of the new book, Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. That'll be available March 23rd, 2021. But uh, my ears always perk up whenever a guest mentions practices because – 
to me, a lot of times that's the meat and the potatoes. Like, all right, we've existed in the nebulous and ethereal, at least the theoretical for a little bit. I would love for you to spend a little time sharing with us. What are some of those practices for the type of enchanted life that you're talking about? Uh, there's a saying in Catholic theology that goes matter matters. Yes. And I'm a Protestant. Um, and so there's some wisdom in that matter matters. And what they mean by that is if you have any exposure to Catholicism, the material surroundings make a difference. Hmm. And if you go into like a, a Protestant worship auditorium, it's a pretty disenchanted place. There's not a whole lot reminding you of the presence of God. Maybe there's some mic stands, a drum kit. <laughs> there might be a cross. But if you go to a Catholic space, you're surrounded by stained glass, hmm. uh, aromas with the incense, statues, pictures. So one one practice is just attend to your surroundings. Again, if, if experiencing God is a practice of attention, then there are things that we can do to re-enchant our space. Hmm. So think about what you wear on your as far as your jewelry. Think about what hangs from your uh your mirror in your car, what, what sits next to your bed stand? What does your office look like? Can you put up visual cues that kind of remind you that that God is everywhere present? And so look, don't just reduce space to functionality, but attend to aesthetics. So that's another practice. Attend to the aesthetics of the faith. I think when our faith becomes excessively verbal and intellectual and not aesthetic, hmm. uh, we, we lose track of that emotional register there. Yeah. Um, another practice I think is prayer practices, especially ones geared toward gratitude because gratitude is on this outward posture of receiving a gift. And the word for gift is the same word for grace in scripture. Mm -hmm. And so I think practices of gratitude um, in prayer, just saying thank you for this moment is a way to re-enchant the day because then you turn something that's like a normal task, like before you sit down at work or do that first load of laundry or before you get in that long car commute, if you just take a breath and just say thank you for this, mm. then you enchant that moment and you chant something that has been in the past, maybe disenchanted, right? Devoid of the experience of God. And I also think I have a chapter in the book about Celtic Christianity. And I just think a lot of us know that nature is a place where we experience enchantment. God interrupts us out in natural spaces. And that's one of the lessons I think we've gotten from COVID is people got outside a little bit more hmm. and realized how healing that had been for them. And and so nature is a good example, uh, prayer and gratitude, and just attending to beauty and aesthetics are just some things that you can do in your life to re-enchant your day. We talked about your blog, Experimental Theology, uh, and you wrote one just the other day that I was reading through today as we we're getting ready for this interview called The Powers and Political Involvement. And this is a question Ian and I have been talking about a ton, especially since the election. You start it with this question. What is the place of politics in the life of the Christian? And uh, I, I love to ask that question of our guests. And uh, could you share with our people, how do you answer that question? How do you answer the question you pose there? What is the place of politics in the life of the Christian? Yeah, I think the two temptations are withdrawal and isolation or over-investment, over-involvement. So you're really walking between these two temptations. So there are some Christian impulses, especially on the Anabaptist side of the tradition, like the Amish and whatnot, where the idea is to not participate. And I actually grew up in a church where non-participation was the way to go. Like we wouldn't even vote. And the idea was that politics was the apparatus of Babylon. So don't, don't touch it. Whenever the church touches the levers of power, 
bad things happen. And, and so some theologians have described that as the Constantinian temptation. When, when Christianity became aligned with the state, the Roman state and Constantine, things just started going off the tracks. Hmm. I think the other tendency is to is to lose track of the church and think that what happens in Washington, D.C. is the hope of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening with my students, especially my students that are social justice warriors. And, and by that, I, I use that as a very respectful term because the passion to make the world a better place, um, I adore it. And I think we should be involved. We can talk more about that. But, but it seems like more and more my students' imagination is that the only lever they can pull to change the world is electoral politics. Mm-hmm. And right, and, and therefore, that's high stakes now. Every election is high stakes because if we don't get hold of that lever, then everything's just going to fall apart. Right. And I think we see that what is happening in the Christian community on both the left and the right, when the left, Christian left, I'm speaking about, and the Christian right get over politicized. I, I think we've narrowed the bandwidth of how we change the world. So I try to get my students to say, hey, I think the local church is still really important. And there are things you can do in your community where you're looking eye to eye with people. And so don't just worry about what's happening in Washington. Just don't follow Twitter feeds. Like volunteer in your community because there you're going to find life-giving work that is actually making a local difference. So a localism is where I want to get my students focused. And it it seems like it's becoming increasingly easier and more popular to to not just be like a social justice warrior, but to be an online social justice warrior. You know, we talk a lot about like virtue signaling. As long as I tweeted about it, I've done something. And I, you know, language matters, awareness matters. But I also am reading here, when you talk about that that eye-to-eye type stuff, you lead a Bible study each week for inmates at a maximum security prison. Could, could you talk to us a little more about that particular part of your life? Yeah, no, that's exactly uh, a great illustration of what I'm speaking about is that uh, I, I was having a tendency to reduce Christianity to verbal performance. Um, uh, where we all we, we talk a lot. I don't know if you noticed that as a faith, we just we talk a lot, and, and we can reduce Christianity to intellectual beliefs and ver- verbiage. Mm-hmm. And so I was concerned about just the plight of incarceration, and and uh, uh, and so I volunteered to start leading a Bible study to maximum security prison north of my hometown here, where I lead a Bible study every Monday night for about 50 inmates there. And it has been so life-giving to be, to be involved in that work. It just changes how you see the world. It's been the highlight of my, of my week really. And it's kind of one of the reasons why I got into Johnny Cash because of his Folsom prison, San Quentin prison albums. It was, it was through my prison ministry that I got attracted to the music of Johnny Cash and how he experienced kind of a grace there on the margins of society as well. And Richard, the last question I want to ask you is this, Ian and I are both pastors. You may not know that that's what we do kind of our main jobs. And so uh, thinking again about hunting magic eels and this idea of an enchanted faith, what would you say to pastors specifically about how to lead a church in this way, whether it be how we structure Sunday morning or where we put our emphasis, what would you say to pastors who want to go in this direction? Yeah, I taught a class at, about this at Fuller Theological Seminary just this last um, summer. And one of the things I had those pastors do in the class was just ask their people, when was the last time God showed up in your life? Mm. And they got some really great feedback because, again, it's a hermeneutical hermeneutical activity. You're asking people to say, go back in the day, when did God show up? Mm. So teach your people to read their lives in an enchanted way Mm. because otherwise you're going from Sunday to Sunday and God's not in between. 
Right. So, so helping them tell their own stories of God's activity in their life and naming the presence of God, I think is a key practice because if we don't do it in this secular age, we lose track of God's existence completely. And we start living as like functional atheists. Like we believe, but functionally we're going through the day as if God does not exist. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's so good. We're so grateful for you being so generous with your time real quickly. Where can people get the books or read your writing or book you to speak or find you on social media? Just hit us with all that. Yeah. I mean, you can go to my blog, Experimental Theology. My email is there. You can contact me if you want me to show up at uh, your organization or your church. And my books can be found at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or IndieBound, wherever you like to buy your books. Yeah. Richard Beck, just Google it. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Dr. Richard Beck, author of Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. Thank you so much for joining us on Thank the show you. today. Thank you. It was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Have I mentioned yet how glad we are that you're here? Well, I'm glad. I don't. Brian, are you glad that they're here? I am. I'm. I'm exceptionally glad today. I'm very happy. Um, we should be keeping track of this. I wish we had because it's now becoming disproportionate the number of times that we reference David French on the show. That's right. To where I think we owe him money or something like there's a <laughs> like at some point like why don't we just read his blogs as the show. But he uh, he wrote a piece, actually shared it with a number of people, and they had some helpful feedback. So it's not a it's not a perfect piece. That no blog is perfect, but the headline I think is is timely and very. Uh, how do I put it? It's Frenchy and it's balanced. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain level of okay. So the title is discerning the difference between Christian nationalism and Christian patriotism. How comfortable are your cultural slippers? So. I'm already intrigued. Like, that's a great yes. title, subtitle. Why don't you get us into it? Yeah, and I think it's fun since you and I do a show, people tend to send us stuff. Uh, and I think we uh -huh. both were sent this article separately this weekend. And you're like, okay, people know we like French. But uh, but mm -hmm. beyond that, just people were spreading this all around social media. So uh, as is often the case with David French, it's long and and you need some some time to just read it. But let me just get us into it. David French writes, as America moves out of the Trump era, I've got to confess that I did not expect the years of debate, uh, years of debates over Trump's nationalism and the difference between nationalism and patriotism to coalesce so quickly and completely around a conversation about Christian nationalism. But that's what happens when a wooden cross is erected not far from a wooden gallows and when praying patriots storm the nation's capital to try to stop an election and allegedly, quote, save a nation. But there's a critical problem in the debate, French writes. It's difficult to define exactly what Christian nationalism is. Right. To the extent one can create an academic def definition, it's hard to improve on the one that Baylor University historian Thomas Kidd cites in a Gospel Coalition essay. Uh, he quotes Matthew uh, McCullough's description as an understanding of American identity and significance held by Christians wherein the nation is a central actor in the world historical purposes of the Christian God. Kurt, uh, Kidd further notes that Christian nationalism provides a, quote, exaggerated, transcendent meaning to American history and can undergird American militarism. Hmm. This definition helps explain, for example, the intensity around debates about American history and intensity that uh, sometimes causes conservative Christians to seek to amplify America's virtues 
while minimizing its flaws. Let me let me pause there. There's a lot there from French and who he quotes. Uh, does that is that helpful for you? Do you think in understanding the phrase about Christian nationalism, do you think that gets at it? Because that phrase is being thrown a lot uh, around a lot these days. Christian nationalism. Uh, do you find that to be helpful from French about how to better understand that? Well, I think what you said, or I guess in your question, it's true on multiple levels. One, I think what he wrote is helpful. But two, I also think it is being tossed around in the same way that fascism, socialism, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. he's become he's become uh, caricatures almost for just anyone or anything or any ideology that we don't agree with or we don't like or uh, is scary to us. So I. I think it's important. I think that's that's why I wanted this in the show, because I think the distinctions are helpful. And I think for me, at least where he says this, Christians seek to amplify America's virtues while minimizing its flaws. That's a great summary. Now, obviously, people are going to disagree on what is amplifying, and what is minimizing. But there don't you don't, haven't you experienced some of that, though, where to in any way point out what could potentially be something problematic in our culture, for example, mm-hmm. when the when the knee jerk is, well, then you can leave. I'm like, what that? Why is yeah. that the position? Why? When did it become unpatriotic to say, hey, this one thing about our country or our system or our heritage or our current reality or whatever is maybe not great. And I could be wrong, but like based on these three things I just read, I think that's maybe toxic. And for and it makes sense based on this description that the like instinctual reflex would say, well, then you can leave as if to say any criticism or any acknowledgement even of what could potentially be seen as a flaw is like betrayal. I'm like, well, that yeah. doesn't sound healthy. That wouldn't be healthy in like human to human relationships. I don't think it I certainly don't think it's healthy in like a human to nation kind of relationship. So, I, yeah, I think what he sets up here is really helpful. It's the old when people just yell, love it or leave it, right? And Love it and, or leave it, right. And and there's something to be like, no, if I love our country uh, and, and uh, you know, if I love the United States of America, which I do, then, then part of loving it is going and I want it to be the best it can be. And yeah. and part of that is you could say you, you love the country without claiming the country to be perfect. Uh, and so you can examine it. It's the same thing we do with our churches, right? Like I can look at our church and go, I love my church, but here's the things I want us to do better. Here's the things we're not doing well right now. Here's the things that we're killing it at. Uh, and to think of it more broadly, and I do think that that is problematic, as you said, as you point out, because you do run up against that. Anytime you push up against, um, whether it be uh, if you're a Republican and, and you start to talk about, well, but here's what, I, you know, where I'd like to see the Republican Party do better. And all of a sudden it's like, what are you a blank? Are you a Democrat? Are you this? Are you that? Uh, no, no, to love something, to love our country is to say, uh, I want to I want to see it be better. Yeah. And I'm I'm curious why you think. Uh, blind allegiance, I guess, without any scrutiny. Why is that so valuable? Or maybe a better way to ask it is why? What's the appeal from your vantage point? A reality where, and I can't remember where I heard, I heard some concept like, man, don't be a loveless critic or a critical lover. Like there needs to be a balance of, yeah, I love, like you say, I think, I think a church is a good example. Like for you to say to your leadership or to your congregation, I love this church, but there's a percentage of people that have, they've just lost you. If you can't Mm -hmm. say that statement, Brian Fromm, without a but, then you don't actually love this church. And you and I, I think we agree on this. Like, no, it's because I love this church. Exactly. But I feel like we need to have our eyes open to a part here that is not 
helpful or or maybe not even not helpful, not firing on all cylinders. Like, oh, that could use some improvement. What do you think is the the draw, I guess, of like a a love it or leave it type of posture? I think it's a couple of things. I think one is uh, introspection is painful because it causes mm-hmm. you to need to highlight stuff that might be uncomfortable or to make changes uh, that can be messy. And uh, and and. You know, like think about none of us would ever be like, love it or leave it. If my wife asked me to like work on some things in my marriage, like, hey, I love <laughs> you to death. But there, here's a couple of things I think we could do better in our marriage. Right. I don't. My first thing is not to be like, fine, get out then. Okay, go find right. something better. You know, it's no right. because we love each other. We want this marriage to be the best it could be. So I think that's one. It could be uncomfortable. Uh, and two, I think a lot of times if we if we bring up stuff uh, that we think are wrong, uh, it just opens the door to debate and people don't want to debate it. They they want to be right and, and they don't want to think critically about whether it be the country or the church. Uh, I, I think it's because I love my church. Let's take pastoral role here. It's because I love my church that I constantly want to dissect it and look closely at it and go, what can we do better? What can I do better? Like, I think that's a sign of loving something versus just kind of blindly going, that's great. Best church ever. Well, none of us. Yeah, none of us. We just do that so we don't have to look at the hard stuff. Right. Uh, and and I think our country. I think as we are. I think here. Let's put it this way. I think to truly be patriotic is to say I love my country and I'm going to be critical of it so that we can become better. Okay. And I'll and I'll say this as we wrap up. This is a terrible time to play devil's advocate. I think there is probably <laughs> such a thing as too critical. Like if I you think you're say, right. Like I'm going to spend every minute of every day to use your example, criticizing and scrutinizing my relationship with my wife. I agree with that. There might be a time just to go have a nice glass of wine and stop for a second. Agree. You know what I mean? Like that's so totally agree. All that to say it is much, much like we got into what the first three paragraphs. Yeah. <laughs> As is always the case with, uh, with David French article. It's so good though. It's up on our Facebook page. Highly recommend you check it out. Why not coming up next? Let's talk idolatry. That'll be fun, right? That's what's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about idolatry and then should you abandon your online services. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I don't know why I felt like this would be a good time for this segment. It's uh, it's just a couple of days old, but I wanted to talk about idolatry. To be honest, I was writing a talk for Judson University that I recorded today that'll, I think it airs a week from now or something. It's hard to keep straight when all this stuff is. And this was part of some of the ideas. So when I came across this, I thought, yeah, this could be a good segment. So here's the headline. Our attraction to idols remains the same even when the names change. I love that because I still feel like often when we talk about idolatry in churches, we're like, well, I don't have any statues and I'm not Mm -hmm. praying to any false gods. So this one doesn't apply to me. And and most every time, I'm like, oh, this applies to all of us. I feel confident saying that. So why don't you uh, get us into this article at Christianity Today? Yeah, it's an interview with a, uh, an author by the name of Christopher J.H. Wright, uh, who wrote, Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times. Uh, and, and there's a couple interesting points he makes here. Like, he goes on to say, uh, yeah, we're not bowing down to golden calves and this and that, but but we do uh, idol worship is a huge deal today. And I, and I, I think it was very eye-opening for me 
when somebody went through and just kind of showed, I, I remember listening to a talk at one point where uh, they, they discussed how idol worship just goes through all of scripture. It is like, uh, you know, it is like at the, the foundation of the 10 commandments and throughout. Uh, and so he goes, how did the authors of scripture understand pagan gods and idols? Did they believe that others existed? He said, yes and no. He said, uh, so yes, they exist, but not as big G God, only right. as human constructs to which people attribute power and authority. It's very important. And then they ask him, you trace all human idolatry back to the events of Genesis 3. Can you elaborate? He says, Genesis 3 portrays a moment when human beings choose to distrust God's goodness, disbelieve his warnings, and disobey his instructions, instead defining for themselves what counts as good and evil, having dethroned God they end up submitting to entities, either material or spiritual, within the created order, or else they assert their own moral autonomy. And that's what's so important about it. If, if we just think of idols as golden calves, as statues, as this or that, it becomes really easy, like you said, for us to go, I don't do that. Great. You know, I, right. I, I check that one off. I'm not an idol worshiper. Uh, but his description there about dethroning God and putting other things up uh, on the throne, if you will, uh, I whether will. it be ourselves or money or whatever else becomes a really important way to, to look at it because then you realize, oh my gosh, we have idols all over the place. And uh, this becomes a real struggle. We talk about it often, but Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, is an awesome resource along this topic. But man, idol worship, I think, is is at least as important to discuss now as it was in the Old Testament with the Israelites. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I mentioned that I, uh, I wrote a talk for Judson University, my beloved alma mater. I want to read, um, let's see, how many do I got? Three or four quotes that I used in the talk. I'm just going to read all four of them for you and then kind of get your thoughts uh, because I think it actually ties into this article in a uh, hopefully a helpful way. So this first one's from N.T. Wright. And he says, when we humans commit idolatry, worshiping that which is not God as if it were, we thereby give to other creatures and beings in the cosmos a power, a prestige, and an authority over us, which we, under God, were supposed to have over them. When you worship an idol, whatever it is, you abdicate something of your own proper human authority over the world and give it instead to that thing, whatever it is. Quick aside, that's actually maybe closer to how I feel about some of these lowercase G gods, which by the way, if you're a Christ follower and you've been one for any length of time, it it's in the text. We just sort of like skip over it. Like these other God, I mean, the Psalms are filled with language of like these quote unquote other gods. And I think NT Wright is on something here. I think it's m more than just something, some human, you know, built and now they're worshiping this other thing. I, I believe in the spiritual realm. I believe that there's, you know, Paul uses the language of, what's he say, powers and principalities, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of ways those things, there are other wills at play here that are behind some of these things that we call idol worship. So I don't think it's just simply like, ah, he built a thing and now he's worshiping right. some dumb statue. I'm like, no, nah, I think that there's some, I don't know how to explain it. And I don't really know that I have a fully formed thought on it. But Peter Kreeft, who is a philosopher that I enjoy, he said, the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. Two more mm -hmm. real quick. Uh, Professor Matt Rossano, he wrote for the Huffington Post. He says, I'm sympathetic to the view that humans will, either by design or default, end up worshiping some God, if by God we mean that to which we willingly offer service and sacrifice in exchange for a sense of meaning and purpose. I thought that was a, a great definition. And then lastly, the uh, novelist and social critic David Foster Wallace in his kind of now famous commencement address at Kenyon College, he says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, 
there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that I didn't give you those ahead of time. So you're just trying to like hear them. But mm-hmm. do any of those stand out or resonate or do you aggressively disagree with? No, they they all do. But that last one. And I, I love that. Uh, his name's David Foster Wallace, right? I, mm-hmm. That commencement speech is unreal. But yes, but to say that it's not. There's no such thing functionally as atheism. We all worship something I think is such an important thing that we all have to understand, right? It's Mm. not like I worship God or I worship nothing. Uh, But And then it becomes how do you define worship? And I think one of those quotes that you gave there kind of defined it a little bit, what I give service to, what I give, uh, I forget the other words they use, but it's this idea that we all do worship something and what we worship is our God, is our idol uh, and uh, you had a quote the other day. I do not remember it, but something eventually. How do you figure out what your idols are? Which I think is an important one here. But uh, no, I think that Wallace quote is is so important because you might look at your neighbor and be like, "Well, they don't believe they're not worshiping anything." Yeah, they are. Yeah, you know, right. it might be it might be uh, you know we worship materialism. A lot of us just worship ourselves. We worship pleasure, whatever else it might be. Uh, mm-hmm. everybody's worshiping something. And then that, that gives you an opportunity to have discussions too about that. But uh, yeah, we are all worshiping something. I think that's an important uh, aspect there with the last couple of minutes we have here. How would you help people who are still like, I'm still not getting it. How would you help people identify their idols? Uh, what, what mm-hmm. is, what, what is the, how do we have the ability to go? Yep. That's an idol for me. Yeah. Okay. So I would say a couple of things. That's a great question, by the way. Um, one of the things I said in the talk was that, it's not enough to say that we're created to worship or even for worship. Mm-hmm. I said, we are all created worshiping. Like mm-hmm. there is no on off, like you're worshiping someone or something. So the first step I think is to acknowledge that it's not a matter of like, nah, I'll choose column C and not worship anything. Like, nope. Like that's, I do. I really do think that is um, unavoidable. So a couple of the questions that I asked the students to consider uh, maybe seem obvious elementary, but I think they help at least begin to find the, the, you know, the breadcrumb trail to what our idols actually are. Uh, what do you spend your money on? Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus pretty famously where your treasure is, there your heart is this idol worship is ultimately about the location and formation of our heart. Uh, how do you spend your time? Like be really honest, you know, like if it's 30 seconds of Bible reading and prayer a day and seven hours of Netflix, mm-hmm. um, net, I mean, I'm not knocking it. I, we've all been there. Netflix might be your functional God. I think the question that I said or the statement on air was, um, God, I'll worship you if, or God, I'll worship you when, or as long as whatever's on the other side of that sentence is your actual God. Um, that's super convicting. And then the one that I think is really pointed right now is, uh, when you're in a tough spot, where do you go for an escape? Right? Like, is, is it a, is it a book? Is it a bottle? Is it a gym? Is it a website? Like, where, where do you look for meaning and significance in all of this? That to me, like in the year of COVID and everything yeah. that we've experienced, where do you go for meaning, significance, and purpose? Uh, there's a, I think probably a pretty good indication that there's a, uh, there might be an idol lurking. Either way, uh, the article's brilliant and it's a topic that I think is really important, especially now. And we would love to know what you think. It's up on our Facebook page, weigh in the comments, or you can shoot us a private message if that's more your style. But I do want to talk about online service a little bit here at uh, Christian Post. Seven reasons you must not abandon your online services. That's coming up next here in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian from Heidi Ho, all you neighbors. Thank you for joining us. 
You can find us Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Here's one that runs the risk of being maybe a little too pastor-centered, but I, I'll i get to it later. There are implications here that I think are important for all of us, regardless of what your church is or isn't doing or where you live. But it's from Tom Rayner, who I think has just a, a massive body of work, and rightfully so. He wrote over at Christian Post, uh, seven reasons you must not abandon your online services. Someone might be listening, thinking like, I was not considering it. Other people may be thinking, man, I can't wait to get away from online ASAP. Either way, uh, really interesting take, and I'd love for you to get us into it. Yeah, and especially uh, he's talking about churches as they start to return to in-person gatherings. This is uh, this is a painful one for me to read right now because for the first time, Ian, the other yesterday uh, on Sunday since the pandemic began, we've just been doing face on Facebook and YouTube. It just crashed five minutes oh, before no. the service. <laughs> yes. No. So that was the first time, our, though. The first time we've had any problems since March, but thankfully wow. we have got a great tech guy who still got it recorded so we could just put it up like an hour later. But yeah, it, nice. yesterday was that day Wow! Uh, in the midst of a snowstorm and everything. So a wonderful morning. Of but, course. Right. Uh, right. Rainer writes, as churches return to in-person gatherings, they're abandoning their digital and streaming services. At the very least, they're not giving them the attention they did during the quarantine. So this is an interesting perspective because here in Illinois, I think we're much more still quarantined than where Rainer's writing from. He said, but it's a mistake. It's a big mistake. Here are seven reasons why we believe strongly your church must continue to emphasize and invest in digital and streaming services. And uh, we'll go down this list. But as I said, your church at Community, when uh, that you guys were always doing this, or you had been doing this pre-COVID, churches like mine, we had to kind of learn this on the fly. So to totally see why the temptation is like, okay, and then once COVID's over, we don't have to do this anymore. Right. And uh, we can kind of cut that out. And Rainer's going, no, that would be a mistake. So here's number one. Rainer writes, it will grow slowly after it declines. One pastor wrote me, he said, we had 750 people view our online services the first week. Now it's dropped to about five during the live streaming service. It's really not worth our effort. Rainer mm -hmm. says, I get it. But the instant growth churches saw, but the instant growth churches saw at the onset of the quarantine was an anomaly. Churches that are investing time and other resources in digital services are seeing slow but steady growth after the immediate decline. So it will grow, it will grow slowly after this kind of decline period. So number two, uh, it's a great alternative for those who are physically unable to attend the in-person services. I've actually heard a number of stories like this right. from, like you had mentioned before March, like we didn't really have an online option, right? So yep. sort of forced, like being forced to, I imagine Four Corners is reaching people that you right. hadn't previously a year ago, which is pretty crazy to think about. And it says some of your members and guests are homebound. Others are out of town. The digital service becomes their only alternative. And for those of you who are arguing that dig digital services will be an excuse for physically able persons not to attend, we're not seeing that reality take place. At most, any losses are more than offset by gains. So I appreciate because he's again, he's got this whole like research bent. So he's saying, hey, you might be feeling this. You might be freaking out about this. That's actually not what our research is showing at all. That's more than what you or I could say. We're like, well, that probably won't be the case. Yes. <laughs> no, which yeah. is not all that comforting to pastors and teams having to make these decisions. That's right. That's right. Number three, uh, it is a compliment to the in-person service. 
though it's uh, though it's in its incipient stages, we are seeing digital services become a first step for people to come to the in-person services. They, quote, test run the church several weeks before they attend in person. We mm-hmm. are particularly seeing this trend among nominal Christians and non-Christians. That's a fascinating one because we've always said uh, people will test you out by going on your website or going checking you out. But now, as everybody's doing online services, what Rainer here is saying is people are going to check out your actual service uh, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks before they actually invest and come in person. Yeah. One of the things, you know, we saw community was that people not only like found the church, but then, you know, quote unquote, attended for a few weeks. And in some cases, like surrendered to Jesus, got mm-hmm. baptized and now joined a Zoom small group and they live in New York or whatever. You That's know what I mean? Like it's wild. It's really wild. And I think it's happening more often than we might think, which I think is fascinating. Uh, number four, it opens the door for ministry to the community. A church is not only supposed to be in a community, it should be a ministry to the community. Oh, that's well said. Mm-hmm. Your church will have a much greater visibility to the community with online services than most other alternatives. I'm working with one church that's investing $20 per week on Facebook ads to send the service to those in the church's zip code. It's beginning to show fruit. I do wonder, I, f- I was a big fan of like utilizing Facebook to some degree. I wonder if it's, has it reached market saturation? We're like, yeah, but every, every church on every street corner is doing that exact thing. Like, will that become just a digital postcard. You know, we talk about those like Christmas mailers That's where people right. like <laughs> click block deny, like it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the next year. And I also think so many, you and I talk about on the show all the time. Like it does feel weird sometimes to like in your sermon, try to encourage people. Don't be so tied to Facebook in your life. And thank you for those of you who are watching us on Facebook. Yes, I know. <laughs> it does, I know it does I feel, know. I know sometimes you got to use what you got to use. Right. But, but I wonder yes. too, if it'll move away from Facebook. Number five, uh, it's an incredible instrument for prayer. I'm encouraged to see an increasing number of churches offer prayer lines through phone numbers and or email addresses. A pastor recently told me that their email address, prayer at, was growing in the number of prayer requests sent by the week. The church puts that email address on the lower third of the stream several times during the service. That's a great idea. So a lot of increase in prayer through the online. So uh, do we got time to get to the rest of these? Oh, yeah, we got time. Okay. Uh, number six, it is a truly an Acts 1-8 ministry. Church leaders and members are excited to discover their reach is beyond the community to other points in the nation and the world. The early Christians had to travel the Roman roads to get the gospel from town to town. The internet has become our Roman roads. I'd be curious to know, I, I would love to find a study to see, ah, this is like an embarrassing thing to admit. I was listening to a, a church podcast the other day. I was trying to find a podcast on a certain topic, and I don't know how you deal with podcast searching but the one that i found where the guy had a british accent and i was like i'm listening like i was like <laughs> instantly intrigued and i wonder if it goes both ways where people are like well because of this sort of globalized landscape like yeah i'd love to listen to a a pastor from exotic chicago i just i'd be curious to know if that happens all right sorry yeah. you can get us to the last one Last one, it could provide cohesiveness to a multi-site church. More churches are becoming multi-site and multi-venue. A number of churches are beginning to open micro-sites. The streaming service can be a place for everyone to get information on what is taking place at all sites. One church takes the first five minutes of the streaming service to give a monthly update for viewing to all sites. It has become a great way for the different sites, venues, and services to all be on the same page. That's that's an interesting one. Multi-site churches using it as as a way to be connected. So what's your takeaway from all this? Oh, I think I I, I don't think uh it's wise to say oh we should move away from uh from 
uh, being online. Like I, for one, think people and you and I've talked about this are longing to be back in person. I'm not one of these people who thinks, oh, no, now there's going to be this whole crowd just watching at home instead uh, because we've trained them that way now. But I actually think people are going to flood back when they can, when they feel comfortable, but that now to be online uh, is just a great way to do all these things he talked about. At the very least, to help some of the older people or people who are sick or who aren't able to get there, be yes. able to, it, that's enough for me right there. Like that yes. alone is enough. But all the other ones he adds, I think, uh, add on top of that. I don't see any reason why you'd even stop now that we a lot of us have done the hard work of trying to figure it out. Well, and we know this is a topic that a lot of people are talking about right now. So like always, this article is up on our Facebook page. What What do you think? Are you a, a fan of the digital online? Do you see it only as an alternative? Or if you're willing to share, you're like, nope, this is my new church. I I think church in my PJs is the way to do it. Or, you know, maybe you're a, you're a sacramentalist who's thinking, that, no, that's not it's not even theologically accurate to call that church that's just something being piped in through your tv either way we'd love to know what you think up at the facebook page coming up next you know what i'm just gonna read the headline and leave it at that the headline simply reads quiet isn't always peace that's coming up next here in the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm. do you want to talk about how I uh, I had a butchered attempt earlier to say the word abandon and said abandon. <laughs> I just enjoyed that so much. <laughs> it was like it's not even an accent. It's just like a. It's like it's e- like you got halfway th- through. It's like you got halfway through the word and you weren't sure where to go, and it just came out really funny. <laughs> it literally it felt like my mouth just rebelled. Like my brain said, "Okay, the next word is abandon," and the mouth went, "Nope." <laughs> you're gonna say it like it's like you're sleeping with a with a mouthful of marshmallows and in like a weird australian accent that's what we're that's what we're going with so that was fun it's a weird thing great. too because like unfortunately and you know uh we talked about earlier in the show with our guest who was saying like we talk probably too much as a culture and in my head i was like that's like what we get paid to do <laughs> yes it is <laughs> and i totally agree with him but it man it it certainly is convicting when you're like, yes, I totally agree. Also, we're pastors with a radio show, so we do a lot of talking. So when when Dr. Beck was like, we probably should talk less. I'm like, <laughs> wait, can I? That would be awesome. Um, Just not between four and six. <laughs> yeah, right. So speaking of which, this is this is my lame attempt at a segue. So Travis Lowe wrote an article this is about a week ago, and I just I love the headline. I think the concept, it might rile some people up, but I think it's an important one. It says, quiet isn't always peace what is going on with this blog yeah it's very interesting he says people in my church will be tired of hearing me quote first thessalonians four eleven: endeavor to live a quiet life mind your own business and work with your hands i think he writes this is one of the most essential scriptures we can live by in our social media saturated culture with more platforms than ever to express our opinions choosing to be quiet is an act of defiance This has been a scripture to live by for me, but it's also one that causes me to wrestle with other scriptures. I read Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. Or I look at the life of Jesus and see moments when he chose to not be quiet, but to raise his voice, even if it caused division because the matter at hand was too important not to speak. Most powerfully for me, he writes, I think of Paul in Acts chapter 20, speaking of being innocent of people's blood and then warn them to stand strong against false doctrines. 
that would come from within the church. He seems to be saying that silence in the face of bad theology could be equivalent to murder. These scriptures, which are clearly in tension, in tension with each other, uh, may explain why I'm so hesitant to speak, but also why I feel compelled to not always be silent. Let me pause there. What do you think about that? I've, I, this is kind of something I've never really thought about, like the the past, the, the scriptural calls it to be quiet and mind your own business and also to speak up for the marginalized and the oppressed. Uh, we talk often about both of those, but him putting them in tension, he uses the word tension, I find really interesting. I appreciate you saying that you don't, you haven't thought about that because I like lose sleep over this. Like I, I can't, it's, uh, it, and this may seem surprising because I, I probably post online way too much. It's tensions like these that lead to me deleting more things before I ever ended up posting them. Cause I can like talk myself out of it and like, wow, there is also this first though that where I can like, I try probably to an obsessive degree, like, well, I could see how though someone on this side of the aisle or this particular persuasion could dismantle this this way or whatever, even though I still think it might be right. And uh, the two references here, let me just read them again. First Thessalonians 4.11, endeavor to live a quiet life, mind your own business and work with your hands. Plenty of people hear that and go, amen, let's do done. And Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed, speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. A whole other group of people probably heard that and went, amen, absolutely, that's what the church needs to be. And therein lies the problem, or not the problem. No, 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 I wouldn't say problem. I think tension by its nature, tension is something to live in rather than a problem to solve, I think, if I if that is fair to say as like a pastor and, and someone who's, you know, needs to think through these things, but that is part of the difficulty of being someone like you said, Brian, you know, if you have a, a platform of any kind of any size, whether it's a church or an organization or your family or a blog or whatever, or even social media, that's a platform, you know, most everyone has, um, that tension is there and, ha- and learning to navigate those things well, because sometimes wisdom looks like cowardice, but sometimes cowardice looks like wisdom. You know what I mean? Like sometimes mm-hmm. I'm not speaking up, uh, cause I think it's the wise thing to do. Like when you're heart of hearts, you know, it's like, I'm just afraid to speak up. I'm afraid to upset right. people. And I think right. that, I think it can go both ways, but I think this, this premise is a, is a really, really convicting one. And it's super important going forward here because, uh, social media is not going anywhere. Uh, the divisiveness of our cultures likely not changing anytime soon. There will be more elections and there will, people are going to continue to have opinions on things. And so the question becomes, like you just said, when, when is it wisdom to speak up uh, and when is right. it wise to be quiet? And I think he, the verses he used, I think, set up some parameters for that. But it does become difficult. You and I have talked uh, countless numbers of times on the show that I tend to be somebody who goes, yeah, I, I don't tend to be a, uh, someone who tweets about things or, or puts on Facebook uh, things that that might rile people up. Some people might go, man, as a pastor and just a person, that's really wise. And other people are going, you know, no, sometimes you need to speak up and that's the platform of our day. I, you know, and I think we all, uh, you know, we have to wrestle with that. Let me, before we weigh in, let me just uh, read the last two paragraphs that Travis wrote here. Cause the middle of the blog is going to be all about how he got rebuked by someone. And so he stayed silent online. He says kind of through mm-hmm. COVID, through the election, through the inauguration, uh, and later on, he goes on to say, it was that then that I decided that if for the sake of unity, I'm called to silence the message, Jesus, the message, Jesus, then I just can't go along. If a message of enemy love disquiets the church crowd, then I'm that I must say, as Jesus did, let us tear this temple down and build a new one. 
Mm. I can no longer risk having blood on my hands for the sake of unity, because in the words of Amanda Gorman, who she was the poet at the inauguration, quiet isn't always peace. You see, I care too much about the gospel of Jesus Christ to let it be misrepresented. I believe too deeply about the atonement that the cross purchased to let my faith be weaponized against the very people Christ died for. I cherish the grace that was given to me way too much to long for the destruction of the bad guys because I realized that I was a bad guy when Christ rescued me. He did not give me what I deserve, but gave me a new life and a challenge to love others into the kingdom. He says, if bad theology really ends with blood on our hands, I fear the church is in great need of repentance and Mm. resurrection. And if good theology brings disunity, then let it be so. Because I realize that my highest ministerial calling is not to unity at the expense of truth, but to love at the expense of power. Good night. I pray we destroy the idols of nationhood and every aspect of Christian nationalism that could charge the capital to fight for worldly power and that the Christian voices that seek to justify it. Bad theology leads to death. I pray we return to being the people of peace in a broken world. And I pray my public voice can be used to this end. That is one of the most powerful paragraphs I've read in a long time. <laughs> that Golly. was that was really powerful. And I think Travis Lowe here, who I'm unfamiliar with, really lays it out well there. Yeah, I uh, honestly, I don't think I have anything to say after that. Don't I think that's so good. I, I know that I, I bring this up at the end of every segment, but there's a there's a whole middle section here where he talks about where right. he was silent. I encourage you to read that. And then in trying to keep us some kind of theme for today, he's got a, a section here where he's referencing N.T. Wright, who, whom I'm a big fan of, um, talking about how idolatry plays into all of this. And gosh, just a, a well-written, mm-hmm. balanced, winsome piece that um, I know I say this every time. I would love to know your thoughts because I, I think that it's I think it's really well written but that is up on our facebook page and i highly encourage you to check that out and again trying to s- still sort of weave a, a sort of theme we're going to talk about covid but i i want to take a different angle with that the headline from the gospel coalition says the covid vaccine and christian unity we've been talking about unity and how we actually pursue unity and what that looks like practically day to day at the local level we're going to tackle that from a covid perspective coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I don't know why I said your name slower than mine. I think it demands a greater gravitas. I think that's probably why I was like, yeah, there's, there's Ian, but guys, I hope you're sitting down. Brian Fromm is in the house. <laughs> and uh, do you want me to do the holidays, Brian? I I was getting so worried because we were like, <laughs> I can see the finish line right He's now. Getting so and worried. I haven't gotten them yet. So, yes, I do. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, I did mention that it is the start of Black History Month. It's National Heroes Day in Rwanda. I don't know. Oh, that was okay. that was a thing. Um, there's a country that I I can't really say. Mauritius, Mauritius, no. No, abolition no. of slavery day. That's pretty wild. Also, in the United States, it's National Freedom Day. Did you know that? I had no idea. Nope. Wow. All right. Should I get into the to the weird ones? I, of course. Okay. It's National Get Up Day. <laughs> National Get Up Day? <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. Okay. I mean, I, I might be putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. What if it's not like Get Up? What if it's like National Get Up? Like, nice get up you got there. Get up off of that thing. What seems more likely? Like a get up, like an outfit, or get up, like get out of bed? 
I didn't get up like get out of bed. You and think it's so? An easy, it's an easy holiday that that the vast majority of us accomplished today, so we can feel good about that. Yeah, they may have accomplished, but they might not have celebrated. And those are exactly. two very different two very different things. Uh, it's na- National Serpent Day. It's unfortunate. Oh yeah, that's not a good day. There is a, a state. Do you want to guess the state? Uh, I do. Today is National Nevada Day. No, you say Nevada. I do. Have you yeah, always? You, I have. I I know my kids are always like, you say Nevada? What? And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Well, I don't know why I guessed that one then if I knew it would bring scoring. Uh, National you, South Carolina Day. No. Yeah, I don't think you get multiple guesses. It's National Texas Day. Ah, they don't need a day. <laughs> why? Why? Why they hate towards Texas? I don't know. They're always like, oh, we should secede. We're like our own state. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Everybody goes okay. to Texas. All right. It's like See, the greatest place in the I world. I shouldn't have asked. I knew I shouldn't have asked. All right. Uh, last but not least, it's not a state day, but there's a state in it. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Ooh, that's a that's a good clue. There's it's not a state day, but there's a state in it. What do you think it is? Uh, yeah, National Main Street Day. Main Street. Oh, that's a pretty good guess. It's wrong. <laughs> uh, I figured it a, would be wrong. It's a good guess. It's a uh, it's National Baked Alaska Day. Okay, I what is a baked Alaska? I don't know. Oh, it's uh, someone from Alaska that gets really stoned. <laughs> <laughs> no um it's a it's like a dessert kind of thing it's like a, like a fishy dessert like it's like fish <laughs> a fishy dessert i think everything from alaska is fishy right so okay just as a rule of th- i don't know that anything fishy can be a dessert i don't think that's even i don't think there's I categories agree. in the universe for that that doesn't you should look up pictures though it's a super strange i just looking i'm looking dessert. at it it's also known as omelet surprise well <laughs> I that is not the kind of omelet I'm interested in eating. I don't want an omelet surprise. Consists um, of ice cream, cake topped, ice cream and cake topped with browned merengue. Okay, I'm into the baked Alaska. Sure. Oh, uh, we are never getting into this article, are we? <laughs> I'm ready. I don't happy text. Also, man. I can't let it slide. I don't think it's merengue. I don't think that's how you pronounce it. Merengue. Merengue. <laughs> After oh, my confession about no. not being able to say a band, then I was like, I don't think I can let merengue slide. Merengue sounds merengue. Nice. merengue sounds like a delightful dance, like a really like. Well, let's have. Oh, can you believe they played that merengue song at the whatever? Okay, so Gospel Coalition, you're kind of the Gospel Coalition guy on the show, aren't I you? Am. So I'll let you. <laughs> you're the brain science guy. I'm the Gospel Coalition guy. <laughs> oh, if those are the categories we're going with, I'm I'm just fine with that. Anyway, Keith Kaufman. He wrote an article and we were talking about, you know, unity from a very different perspective in the last segment. But I thought this was interesting. The COVID vaccine and Christian unity. What is going on here? Yeah, he says the sin of Adam brought a devastating curse to all of creation. The ground would no longer cooperate. So he's talking about the brokenness of creation. Yet God's grace in the midst of the curse is still plainly evident with work. Uh, and knowledge, Adam could still gain what he needed from the ground. So setting up the, the, the curse of the ground, but God's grace. And he says, perhaps you've never thought about the goodness of biomedical research or the goodness of vaccines. In his grace, God allows our knowledge and experience to make life more endurable. Technology and medicine are good things insofar as they are used unto the glory of God and the benefit of others. And saving lives with medicine Uh, And technology is certainly God honoring since the Bible upholds the sanctity of every human life. And now he's going to go on to talk about vaccines themselves as a gift, which some of you out there are going to vehemently disagree with. He Mm -hmm. says vaccines then are a good gift from God brought about by the proper application of biomedical research 
to the human immune system and how it responds to dangerous pathogens. God has given our bodies the ability to recognize dangerous foreign organisms and to remember them in case they return for another battle. A vaccine simply gives the patient a non-dangerous amount or piece of that organism so that the body could create uh, immunological hist- uh, memory before it ever encounters the actual dangerous organism. Uh, it goes on to say the immune system is a truly wonderful gift of God. And just like earlier humans learned agricultural techniques to bring better yield from their crops, researchers have learned uh, the usefulness of vaccines in protecting us from another aspect of the fall. Let me pause there. Is that a um, uh, is that a convincing argument he makes for you? Uh, he, let's pretend that you were on the fence about the vaccine. Is that a convincing argument that he makes to you about the benefit of the vaccines? If I'm on the fence, I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, I don't know why though, because I'm not on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I that makes sense. Play a part there. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. How about for you though? Like, I don't actually. I've never asked you this point blank. Like, are you someone that is like maybe more cautious in this regard, or or quote unquote on the fence to use your phrase? Yeah, I might be letting out too much family history here. So I I am going to get the COVID-19 vaccine. My wife, all of us are going to get it, but we didn't fully vaccinate our kids on schedule. And some of my mm. kids aren't even fully vaccinated now for other reasons that go back into some other stuff. But uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all in on the COVID-19 vaccine from the readings that I've done of it. But I do get why people are hesitant about it. I'm uh, yeah, so I do get it. I, it's just an interesting take he takes here about you know, taking it from the aspect of, uh, you know, that this is God's grace to us. I think there are, like you said, there are people out there probably going, "Mm, no, I'm not so sure about that. So, so what do you, I mean, as a pastor, you probably navigate some of these conversations, like kind of the whole call in charge of this article. And one of the things that we've kind of been doing with this last segment is to not just, you and I like debate something, but I know that we only have like a minute and a half or so left. What do you say? How do you, well, let me frame, frame it this way. Would you kind of pastor us in this final minute or so? Because we know that this is heated. We know a lot of people have strong emotions and opinions about this. What is a way of unity forward in a disagreement as volatile as this one? That's a great question, man. I'm not sure I have a great answer. But one, I did just tell someone the other day, I challenged them with where they were getting their information. Like, I think if you're going to be this opinionated one way or the other, you got to at least uh know the facts as best as you can. Like, don't just take it from like one documentary that you saw uh, about whatever, uh, you know, about the dangers of vaccines and Bill Gates and whoever else. Um, but but at least do your research so that you can have a discussion. And then I I've also talked to this person about, c- could you see vaccines as a way of loving your neighbor? And uh, and I'm not sure I convinced them. Um, mm. but, but it was a good discussion and, uh, yeah. And, and this idea about unity and not allowing these types of things to divide us, like, I don't know, do you think vaccines are something we can agree to disagree on or are they too important, uh, to kind of culturally to the whole community? I mean, personally, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You personally. Yeah. I, I think, uh, it's at the very least a notch higher than, Agree to disagree uh, simply because of what's at stake. I think this is different than like, ah, we like different sports teams. That's, you know, <laughs> that's definitely more than the agree to disagree. But I think this article and the one prior to it, I'm going to spend some time with because I think how we pursue unity and what is sacrificed in the pursuit of unity is a, I mean, it's, it's a timeless quest, but it's one that I think is going to be increasingly important in the next week's 
and then months and probably the next few years in particular. And as always, uh, yeah, I think it's worth doing the hard work for. So this is up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. What, what are some ways for what do we get wrong? If you have suggestions for other articles or even guests, we would love to hear from you in that regard. And either way, uh, we hope that you get a sense that Brian and I are working through this stuff with you. So uh, we want to find a way forward that is God honoring and good for our neighbor and all of that included. So that concludes our show today, but we will be back again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.